Little by little, the country is returning to normal. I went to dinner with my girls a few weeks ago, something we hadn't done in ages. My husband and I are thinking about taking a vacation soon. And more and more of my friends and people in our family are getting vaccinated. There's a small tinge of, dare I say, hope. But unfortunately, the return to normal isn't just about all the good stuff, brunching, going to the movies, shopping, get togethers, you know, that sort of thing. A return to normal in this country sadly means a return to the violence that is woven into the fabric of American life. And so therefore, the word of the week is priorities. As of the taping of this podcast, there have been seven mass shootings in the last two weeks. And obviously the two that have gained the most public attention were the mass shootings in Atlanta and Boulder, Colorado. In Atlanta, eight people were killed, six of whom were Asian women. And from what we know of the shooting, the killer targeted these women because he was struggling with sexual desires as a devout Christian. Funny, that's a really weird way to explain that something was a hate crime. Uh, Anyway, in Boulder, Colorado, a 21-year-old man opened fire in a grocery store, killing 10 people, including a police officer. Now, these two mass killings were within a week of each other. And not surprisingly, this country already is steeped in its cycle of bullshit when it comes to gun violence, which usually goes something like this. Condolences, thoughts and prayers, blame. Something like, now is not the time to have a gun control conversation out of respect to the victims, as if there's enough time between mass shootings to actually have a conversation about gun violence. Mass shootings occur so frequently in this country that every time there is one, the satirical publication, The Onion, publishes a piece about the shooting with the same headline. No way to prevent this, says only nation where this regularly happens. Columbine, Sandy Hook, Charleston, Las Vegas, Aurora, Orlando, Parkland, Fort Hood. And those were just some of the ones I was able to rattle off the top of my head. Last year, despite a pandemic, over 19,000 people were killed in shootings or firearm related incidents, a 25% increase from the year before. And yes, now is the time to ask, what about Chicago? considering there were 4,033 shooting victims there in 2020, about 1,400 more than there was in 2019. Despite the clear evidence that America's gun culture, love affair with guns, and easy access to guns is destroying this country, here's the bad news. Absolutely nothing will be done about it. There are two gun control bills in the House that passed, One expands background checks for all gun sales, including sales between private parties. The other bill would close what is called the Charleston loophole, because this is the same loophole the Charleston killer used before he murdered nine people in a South Carolina church. That loophole allows some licensed gun sales to go through before a required background check is complete. But neither of these bills are expected to go anywhere because both lack supermajority support in the Senate. Despite the fact that the majority of Americans support expanded background checks and some form of gun control, many of the people in elected leadership simply don't care. 
And of course, they want to continue to take money from the NRA, one of the most powerful gun advocacy groups in the country. For example, Boulder, where this latest mass shooting occurred, they barred assault weapons in 2018 after 17 people were killed at Parkland High School in Florida. But 10 days after that ban was blocked in court earlier this month, 10 people who went to the grocery store were dead. The gunman, by the way, purchased his AR-15 style firearm, which would have been included in the ban a few days after that ban had been lifted. If only in this country we had the same energy for suppressing black and brown voters for gun control. 253 bills across 43 states have been introduced to restrict voter access, with pretty much all of the legislation being introduced by Republican lawmakers. There were two cases of voter fraud in 2020. 50 lawsuits alleging voter fraud were easily dismissed. 19,000 people died from guns. And the collective response is, oh, well, but what about the Second Amendment? Speaking of the Second Amendment, when that was created, people had muskets. It was not meant for citizens to carry the same artillery as the police and military. The sad truth is that we are completely comfortable with mass shootings and rampant gun violence being a feature of life in America. I think about this one tweet every single time there's a mass shooting in this country. And I posted it again on my Twitter feed just the other day. Here's how the tweet reads. And by the way, this is from somebody named Dan Hodges. Dan tweeted, and this tweet was in 2015. In retrospect, Sandy Hook marked the end of the U.S. gun control debate. Once America decided killing children was bearable, it was over. Like I said, I think about that tweet every single time that we have a mass shooting. And that's why the word of the week is priorities. Now on to today's show. When I first began this podcast, I had a bucket list of guests that I hoped would one day sit down with me. And today's guest was in the top five, and she's not five. She's brilliant, a creative force in Hollywood who has really changed the game for a lot of Black creatives in the entertainment industry. In fact, she just signed a new deal with Warner Brothers, and sis got paid. According to reports, it is an eight-figure deal. Not a seven, an eight. Eight of them things. Her beginnings included an irreverent YouTube show called Awkward Black Girl, which later turned into one of the best comedy series on cable television. She writes, acts, raps, produces. She's just such a role model for me because she's found a way to just take complete ownership over her creative talents and create opportunities for other black creatives at the same time. Not only does she create television shows, but she also has a record label. She's also part owner of a dope-ass coffee shop that I go to all the time that y'all have heard me talk about because this breakfast eatery is right here in my neighborhood. Shout out to Hilltop Cafe. There is just no one like her in Hollywood. I do mean no one. So I am pleased to welcome Issa Rae up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Rage of the earth. We made this curse. 
Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So, Issa, it's such a pleasure to have you. And I feel even, um, you know, more connected to this interview being that I live in sort of your old stomping grounds, which means I have been to Hilltop Cafe many, many times. Yes. And I have said this on IG. I've said this on this podcast, but I need to tell you personally as a partner in this wonderful breakfast spot. Yo, the banging breakfast sandwich with the chicken (laughs) is a top five (laughs) breakfast sandwich and it's not five. That's all I got to say. With the chicken. Yes. Let's go. Thank you. Thank you so much for visiting. I miss when the cafes were, were booming and bustling. Like that was that that's definitely one of the things I miss, but I'm so glad that you've been able to go and get it. Also, I just learned about you. So you can do chicken and egg together. Yep, you can. Really? Yeah. And you can do shrimp too. Y'all got the shrimp joint too. The mom and the baby. <laughs> the but the I'm baby. saying you eat chicken. I don't know that I've heard the chicken and egg combo. Well, I guess chicken and waffles, chicken, eggs and waffles. Okay. I got to think about that. Yeah. No, I mean, you could do the, the chicken, you can do the shrimp or you could just get it like regular or whatever, but it's on like a brioche bun. So it's like real soft. Yes. It's delicious. I do bacon. See, there you go. And a little bacon and I get some turkey sausage links. You know what I'm saying? And then, mm. yeah, during the pandemic though, y'all, Y'all were like um, something that I should have just considered to be a tax write-off because once I hit up on Postmates, I was like, God damn, I thought this sandwich was $10. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I got to Postmates. That shit was like 35 <laughs> I was like, support black business though. Oh my God. <laughs> Bless you. But I was the same thing. I was like, I hit the, the honors up like, yo, what is going on? First of all, every weekend I'm a, a waffle and Nutella person. They have these amazing banana Nutella waffles and it wasn't on Grubhub which I fuck with more because Grubhub, the food always comes high. Postmates, it always be like lukewarm. Something goes wrong. They don't give a fuck. But those prices, those inflated prices are crazy. Yeah, I'm so glad that a lot of restaurants now are developing their own app. So when you order directly through them, Yes. See what I'm saying? Your Chipotle ain't $65. So it works out. Yes, it works out very well. But I love it. And I can't wait till everything's fully open because it's just, it's two locations or one. We have three now. So there's View Park, um, which I think you you go to. I go to the View Park one, yep. Uh, And then there's the Inglewood one, which is the biggest one. And then we just opened one in uh, Eagle Rock. Uh, so that's been cool to see all the black people that live in Angle Rock and the non-blacks who come through. <laughs> well, the one that I like about the View Park one is that it's perfectly situated. It's a liquor store <laughs> like in the same complex, right? Yes. So I'm like, oh, yeah. OK, so it's like liquor store, pedicure, nail spot. Little barbershop action. Not that I need to go necessarily. I was like, okay, this is a little situation. That was my barbershop. That was when I used to have a short little fade. I had a little talkative barber that I went there to. So it's, it's definitely like a, a staple area. And the Sakshi Teriyaki on the corner, which is like a, a big staple of that area. Oh, okay. All right. Because, I mean, that's the thing that kind of sucked. Uh, me and my husband moved during the pandemic. So we weren't able to try out a lot of the spots oh, um, yeah. that are over there. And I know that it's like an area that's really come up um, or any of the spots that you often visit and insecure. Cause like now when I watch the show, it's with a totally different, Aww. you know, kind of idea. Cause we moved as the show was on. I was like, yo, I think I know where that Ethiopian <laughs> spot is, but I can't go there, you know? So <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So I'm forever um, highlighting spots. Um, 
you know, your journey has been discussed and talked about. The hard thing about interviewing somebody like you is that people have done some really fantastic interviews um, about you. So that makes it much harder for a person like me to uh, try to dig to some shit you probably haven't told anybody. But I will start here. It's a question I ask a lot of guests on the podcast. Tell me about the first time you actually felt famous. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I appreciate you even, you know, digging into other interviewers. That's more than I can say for a lot of people. So I appreciate that. Um, the first time I ever felt famous, uh, <laughs> I saw, I, I, okay, there's two examples. One was with the show, was logging onto Twitter, being a normal Twitter user, season one, when the show ended and seeing that my entire timeline was people talking about Issa and Lawrence, like people that I follow, but didn't know, like they weren't adding me. It was just like, that was my timeline time was Issa and Lawrence. So I was like, I didn't, I didn't feel famous, but I felt like, whoa, the show is famous. This extended beyond me. And people are talking about it without me promoting it, which is crazy. And then the second time was <laughs> once again, logging onto Twitter and seeing a meme where it was like Gucci Mane and smiles like Issa, right? Or we look alike or some shit. And it was like 12,000 people had retweeted it. And I was like, oh shit, like 12,000 people know who I am. 12,000 people get this joke for it to be circulated like this. So I was like, I'm famous. I'm on. <laughs> well, it, I loved your speech that you gave at Essence Black Women in Hollywood a few years ago when you talked about the awkwardness of when you run into, you know, very celebrated women, women that you have admired and looked at your whole life. And suddenly you're in a room with them. And um, I said this to Ava DuVernay when I had her on the podcast last year. I was like, you know, um, I came from a sports face and with all the shit that I went through with Trump, it suddenly vaulted me into a different space. So I suddenly found myself in a room with people like her and with people like you. And I could not have felt more weird because I was like, I don't even know what what should our conversation be? Like, I mean, you, you and I have been on a panel together. I was like, I don't really know what to talk about. Like, it's, it's like, it's so awkward. Um, So give me some advice. How did you kind of overcome that to have like normal conversations so that people don't think that, you know, you're a complete dumbass? Because I feel like a lot of times in these things, I'm like, damn, people must think I'm stupid. I mean, I have been there. It's still, still there, but I think, you know, women like Ava for me and women like, you know, that I've admired have really welcomed me into those spaces. Like even in that, that essence speech, I, I, I want to say that I shouted out Niecy Nash because she like gave me just being nervous in that red carpet line and behind Sonal Lathan, like, what am I doing here? I idolize her. Like I literally do. And why am I in this? Area? And she looks beautiful. And I got my dress from Target and I did my makeup myself. Like, what am I doing here? And to have someone like DC Nash turn around and just be like, Hey, you know, you belong here. Like that. See being a black woman will do that. Like they will just make each other feel like welcome. And, um, I, I think the, was was it our complex panel that we was that it or was it yeah it was a complex panel it was me you Lena Waithe and Karina Evans yes who yep. was also going through that and I was like y'all are brilliant people like at first of all I didn't know even know you were going through that but Karina was like oh what am I doing here and I was like do you know who the fuck you are like you're killing you're killing it so yes I'm gonna follow you on this panel and of course Yara it, it's definitely like I feel like it's imposter syndrome but you just gotta embrace why you're up here you know it's like all I can do is be an expert in what what I'm an expert on and it's just what the fuck I do and I nobody does what you do, do 
Jamel. So it's it's that. So as you started to kind of rise and, and be in these, you know, kind of different kind of rooms, um, at what point did you say you felt kind of comfortable being in the room and not feeling like I'm not supposed to be here? Um, it's a work in progress. I don't know if I can pinpoint a moment, but I've just like, you know, I just got out of a meeting where I'm like, oh yeah, these, these artists are different. Like I, I, I think I, I can recognize my lane and I've always been good at that. And I still have moments where I'm like, okay, well, let me just sit back and observe and watch because this is not my ministry and that's okay. So there's still moments where I'm just like, okay, I, I don't necessarily feel comfortable in this place, but I feel comfortable enough to know what I don't know. And that's what I sit in. And I think that that's okay. I would rather confidently not know than pretend to. Uh, so it's been a process. I'm not fully there yet. Who has been the most surprising fan of yours that you've come across? Or one of the more surprising? Helen Mirren. No shit. I was like, what the, uh, my friend sent me a picture that she took. Cause I was like, I thought I dreamt it and I forgot about it. And then she was with me um, at an event when Helen Mirren came up to me and she hugged me. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> what? Everybody watch HBO. That's wild. And I guess like, you know, the people are taking chances with what they watch. Cause I would never imagine that Helen Mirren is like, Oh, let me see what this show's about. Uh, but yeah, that was definitely a surprising viewer. I don't know if she's a fan, but she she showed up. Do you think Helen Mirren knows the words to broken pussy? Without a do you, <laughs> no, do I know? I thought she meant does she know the phrase broken pussy? Does she know the words to broken pussy? I wish I would give my arm to hear her rap that shit. But she knows Helen Mirren is a bad bitch. I know that. I know she's been around the way. I mean, she's probably never had a broken pussy. Or maybe she has, because never mind. I'm going too much into it. So uh, since, you know, I brought it up, let's talk about this final season of Insecure. Um, people's hearts were broken when they saw that it was finally ending. Was this always the plan to end it after five seasons? Yes. Yes, it was. Um, season one, I remember Talon Prentice. And he just asked, he was like, how long are we doing this? And I was like, five seasons. He was like, cool, <laughs> great. And, uh, you know, I, I've known how this series was. I've known the direction that it was going to go to it. I've known how, how it was going to end. And I didn't necessarily know what the ending was going to be. Um, but now, you know, obviously we've written it. It's done and we're, we're shooting it. And I'm really, really excited about this season. I'm so many factors played into this season in particular, obviously with, with, with COVID and just different things that were running through my mind, through the writer's mind. And they, they play out through this season in a way that kind of touches on that while keeping the story intact. So what does it feel like to be, you know, filming the last season? Are you reflective at every turn or is this still, I know with COVID and everything, it is not going to feel normal necessarily, but you know, what's the sort of mood around the set because everybody knows this is it. Yeah, the only bitter thing is the COVID part, but it feels so sweet. It's it's really like uh, <laughs> even Amanda Amanda Seal shot, and she shot a little bit later, and it was like, oh, you know, so excited to be there, and she was like, last season, I was like, yeah, I'm so fucking happy. She was like, oh, I know, I can tell, <laughs> like, and it's because my energy is so different. Like, I don't have the same stressed energy that I did for different seasons. It's just, you know, I, I feel grateful being around everyone, seeing everyone. Um, 
it's exciting. It's exciting to get to this point. You know, other seasons in the past, it might have been like, I hope we get another season. Or I don't know what the fuck we're doing. Or I don't know how I'm going to fit the time in. But like, I've always just appreciated um, being able to have a kind of a finite story. And the fact that we get to do that with these people that I love so much is is great. So I have been a bit more reflective. I have been kind of smelling the roses uh, and, you know, hope people fuck with the season. If they don't, it's over. <laughs> What's she going to do? Well, when you see, uh, you know, I don't know if you were, were you in the Game of Thrones? Were you in the in the hive on Game of Thrones? Yes. Okay, so you saw how people talk shit about that final season, right? I was one of them. Yeah. And you were one of them that talked shit about it. Look, I talk shit about yeah. it, you know? Why you had to do that? <laughs> Why did you? <laughs> okay, I know, I see where this is going. Do you see where this is going, right? I think it is hard to end series. Like, I couldn't tell you, I know that, you know, you grew up watching the Cosby show, so did I. I couldn't tell you how the shit ended. Like, I don't even remember. Like, I don't remember what the final episode was. Point being, everybody knows how The Sopranos ended. I know how The Wire ended. It is hard to end Fresh Prince. Prince. It is hard to end a series. So are you feeling any additional pressure? Because, again, (laughs) you as a consumer should talk Game of Thrones. And so now people are going to be looking like, hey, if I ain't happy with this ending, you know, you go hear about it <laughs> without a doubt, without a doubt. And I will say, like, <laughs> even one of the things that we talked about in the, in the room is like every season finale could have ended the show. It could have it could have ended the series. And so once I approached it with that mentality and we approached it with that mentality, it kind of was a game changer because there is a the pressure of just having the perfect ending. Um, but these characters lives aren't ending. So that freed it in a way. And I know what satisfies me as a as a viewer and as a storyteller. And I think tapping into that is what's really important for our show. But there's definitely an added pressure. And I think we were stuck in our heads for the beginning part of the writer's room and until like we just had that bit of advice that freed us. We're not ending the show. These characters' lives aren't ending. Um, and so approaching it that way. So we have seen Issa, um, Issa's journey, you know, through the years on this show. Um, how would you say what we see from Issa this season is maybe different from what we've seen from her in previous seasons? I mean, if anything, this season is going to showcase how much she's changed and evolved from season one, you know, and that was also always the goal. The show's called Insecure, but while you have insecurities, you're all, you, you learn ultimately to be comfortable in those insecurities, to be secure in what your insecurities are. Um, and so with every character this season, you're going to see the difference, hopefully. I'm sure you're aware of this because you're plugged into social media. But the one thing I think I probably will miss once the show is gone um, for good is the gender civil war that took place on Twitter after every show. Now, it was not the same last season because it was Molly and Issa and their drama. Thank God. Right. But even even within that, then it was like a intra-community in terms of women, like a civil war about. I know. You guys are, I don't know if that's your is that your that that couldn't have been your intention. OK, right. No. <laughs> that you are creating these larger conversations that lead to bickering nonstop on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. And in some ways, that's what people have made. <laughs> this show like that's what it is about for some people and it was never about that it's never been a show about gender wars and and so like when it's not you know like season three wasn't about like gender wars season four wasn't about gender wars um then it's like people are like oh this show nah it's not this this show fell off because it's not like we're not arguing and i'm like what this 
we're telling a story. That's not y'all took that and, and and did what you did with it. But um, definitely not the intention. It's really funny and and dope that people get so invested and argue and project to their their own lives onto these characters and in many cases overanalyze um that's that's stuff that you ask for because they're treating these characters that you know we've created like like real people and there's nothing more fulfilling than than seeing people kind of run run with that in that way i would imagine with you because the main character is you know named after you and people who are familiar with awkward black girl like there's such a link that people have a much harder time uh, separating you from your character, (laughs) right? Yes, they do. So um, when it came to the Molly Issa drama, what kind of emotional responses did you get from people that are memorable? (laughs) Uh, I mean, low-key, this was the first season where I felt exonerated in a way but and i didn't want to as a writer as a writer i didn't want it to be a bit more even people were hated molly and so in that way i loved being able to you know gloat to yvonne and be like girl sucks to be you right now because she was taking it very personally like really personally and even uh one of my best friends who you know the character molly is based off of hit me up on the side like yo why niggas coming from Molly like that? Like, what is going on? And I'm like, you know, this is not true, right? Like, the character has evolved from you. It's a different person for me now. So you don't have to take this personally either. Um, so that, that's that been very interesting. Um, but yeah, the first couple of seasons, people calling me cheater. People, like, assuming that, you know, my life was concurrently the life of Issa D's. So that's always going to be a thing. And I, I take all the blame for it. <laughs> well, um, I, I had um, Jay Ellis uh, on the show as well because it, it just it just was a goal of mine to get through the whole insecure cast. So I had Natasha, <laughs> I had Neil. You like you were the final piece. I feel like I completed the Infinity Stone by getting you, Issa. All right, finally, you had Prentice first, right? Prentice was like when you and uh, when like- I was on ESPN. Yeah, we had Prentice and Jay on when I was doing Sports Center and. Um, which I'll always remember because all the white people were like, what? They were so confused. They were like, yeah, shut up. Just go with it. <laughs> so at any rate, uh, I had Jay on the show on this podcast rather. And he talked about an encounter he had with a fan and how he got slapped in the airport. Yes. Yes. Right. So um, <laughs> during the height of Lawrence Hive and team Issa and all that, what is a memorable fan encounter? What's one that you remember as well? Hopefully nobody slapped you. Um, I'm <laughs> No, I have never been slapped. That would have been okay. Real shit. I do not play about that. That's wild uh, that someone had the audacity to slap him. Mine have been mostly comedic. You know, uh, they've been more, you know, people yelling broken pussy at me in the bathroom. Oh, that must be fun. (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, my character's pussy wasn't even broken. Uh, But yeah, it's been more of that. People just get really really personal with questions like uh i've had a dude ask me like so like if i came in your face like you really got an issue with it like and i'm like are we there yes sir <laughs> hello nice to meet you i'm um i'm Issa ray you know so it, it's just been like people feeling like they know me uh in that way but nothing wildly disrespectful like being slapped if you had it to do over again would you still name the character Issa? no a thousand times no i would name her 
Amina, Isabel, some shit. I don't know. Something not Issa. Because <laughs> it created a lot of havoc, I, I would, obviously. It, did. it really did. So, I mean, we know how the public responded, but what about with your own like family and friends? Like you mentioned, Molly is based off loosely one of your girls. Were people that knew you in real life coming up to you like, am I such and such? Definitely. Yes, I've had those questions asked. Um, and sometimes the answer is, yeah, girl, my bad. I figured you figure, figure it out. Or people like laughing at characters and being like, you know, that's like I was thinking about you, right? <laughs> so it's been <laughs> it's been, you know, a, a mix, but nobody has been upset, which is great. Mm, yeah. But I think when you're friends with a writer, you date a writer, whatever it is, like you, you know that some aspect of your life is going to be in their material. I think that's, we, we mind what's around us. And I, I'm definitely guilty of that. Now insecure. Uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Hasn't won a golden globe or an Emmy, correct? Been nominated. Yeah. The, the post team of insecure won an Emmy. So we can say we're an Emmy nominated show, but um, no, the show, none of us, none of the actors have won any of those awards. So how much do you care about that? <laughs> how much do I care? Um, I really am happy to be nominated. I don't, I don't stew in it like uh, at all. Um, it's just, you know, it's a, it's just like, I, I don't like to lose, but those award shows are different for some reason. It's just, you're just, it's a party and it's a celebration. And for me, it was always about like the nominations get attention for the show. And that's what I, I love, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know how much I care, to be honest. I'm not sure. I, I don't know unless, I won't know unless maybe I have a show and it's just, it gets no attention and I might feel away. So who knows? Well, did you feel even more of a way or maybe even less of a way? Maybe you gave less than a fuck um, when, I don't know if you saw the report that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which determines the Golden Globe nominations, they have had no black members and haven't had any in a while. And seeing i mean i know that's no shock to you probably um it, it certainly wasn't to me but to a lot of people they're like what like you couldn't tell but at any rate um when you see that and you know that the representation is not even there to appreciate a show like yours does that make you give less you know kind of like these awards like fuck them who cares you know what i'm saying for the Globes in particular, and even before I entered the industry, you know, those rumors were always rampant of like, oh, they're bought and all these things. And then I um, went through the, the process myself and was like, oh, oh, this is how it is. OK, cool, cool, cool. And uh, yeah, I, you kind of just know what it is. So in that way, no, I, I understand it. I'm not surprised. You, I've seen, you know, the members and in that way, I, I was very much aware of, of how things went down. I think the Emmys are different because they're purported to be this, like the, the, the Academy. And um, I think to go back to your other question, I care in that this is supposed to represent the best of television. And I think I hear the chatter of like, oh, awards don't need to validate us. We need to create our own, blah, blah. And nobody says that for like sports stars. It's like you have a competition and you're the best. Nobody's like, we need to have our own black NBA. We need to have our own black MVP award. Like you just want to make a show and you want to be, you want an organization that recognizes it as the best and you want it to be fair and you want it to be measured in that way. And so in that way, like I want to be a part of an organization like that. And that's what the Grammys should be. That's what the Emmys should be. That's what all these award shows should represent um and so with the globes in particular 
I remember just being, I knew that I was going to wake up that day and see that I made this story. You had would, would get multiple nominations just because of how incredible that show was. And to see that that had not been recognized to me, that was just like, Oh, what are we doing here? What are, this is, we're good. Well, I mean, if it makes you not that you feel, you know, sad or anything, but the wire never got shit either. <laughs> and I, I, I know that shit is wild. Wild. Yeah. And, and people often, it's religiously put into the category of being perhaps the best television show ever. And to know that they didn't get shit. It was just like, wow, yep. not even a nomination, which is, which is kind of crazy. I think they got some shit for writing, but yep. that was, um, you know, pretty much uh, it. Uh, I know you recently acknowledged that it's the, the 10 year anniversary of awkward black girl, correct? It is. Yes. Yes. So when you, you think about who you were then versus who you are now, what comes to mind? Oh man. There was more of a fearlessness that I didn't recognize that I had back then, you know, because that was the fearlessness of there are no eyes on you and you're hungry and you want it. And uh, like, there was just that I'm going to, I'm just going to make it, you know? And I think a little bit of that is gone in the, the sense that it doesn't feel like there's nothing to lose anymore. You know, and uh, I, I think about, I think fondly on the, those times that were very, you know, broke times that were very frustrating times that were very like, what the fuck am I doing? And how long am I going to keep on pretending to do it times? Uh, but the irritation, the anger fueled me that seeing the same people get these different opportunities to make these limited portrayals of black people frustrated me, um, seeing us constantly overlooked that's what ultimately made me want to start creating. And it's so interesting to look now. And, you know, I talked a lot of shit online back then too. She was like, that girl back then was a big shit talker. And so it's so interesting now to be on the receiving end of, of shit talking of people who like, you know, might view me in the way that I might've viewed someone else during that time. And I, I find that very, very interesting. You know, obviously, as you mentioned, those were tough times. You were, you know, broke and, um, but I find that people in your position often enjoy the process more and appreciate it more once the success has come. Does success now feel like you thought it would feel? Uh, does it feel like I thought it would feel in some ways? Like I feel happy. I feel like I'm, I, I'll put it like this because I've, I've never called myself successful, but I feel like at least I'm on the path that I want to be on. And I feel like I have the, the terrain to get to where I want to go. And that feels good. Uh, but I didn't realize how insatiable I'd be. You know, I, I didn't realize like, oh, you know, I, I call it a moving goalpost. Like I didn't realize how many balls I would be kicking, you know, and constantly being like, okay, made that. Let's, well, what's the next one? Uh, and one of the lessons that I'm learning now is to be satisfied, you know, and to celebrate a bit more. You know, that's that's kind of impossible, right? <laughs> what you mean? I, I mean, it's it's hard because I've thought about this a lot about what it feels like, you know, and people will look at my career and I, I certainly look at you as a big success, but it doesn't feel like you think it would feel like I think you expect a completion that like, oh, once I make it. But make it is like elastic. It's infinity. It like never happens. <laughs> and so I'm just like, no, it actually doesn't quite feel like I thought it 
it would feel not in a bad way it's just exactly i'm always on to the next thing and it sounds like and especially given the myriad of projects that you're doing now it feels like you are always on to the next thing it's true and i'm on in a constant state of i still feel like proving myself but the only way to feel successful to me is to look back like i think and and i don't know that i look back that often until like like the the anniversary of Awkward Black Girl, the tenure was just like, wow. And then even seeing, you know, some of the faces that were involved in the series and thinking about the time. And I remember being in that time and feeling like, you know, excited, but also extremely frustrated then too, of just like so much is going on. But now, of course, I can look back on it and be like, man, that was such a good time. Uh, but I'm still glad I'm not there. <laughs> right. Because I know you would prefer to be cashing these checks. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I get it. Yes. Well, listen, we're going to talk about the number of projects you had. I honestly would need probably two more podcasts to list all the shit that you are doing. <laughs> you are definitely defining book and busy, but we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more with Issa Rae. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So, um... I was personally excited by this. Uh, I saw when Jasmine Sullivan tweeted you and said she would love for you to do a Hotels short film, which Hotels, it might be our, I mean, I think it might be my favorite thing of 2021, favorite, favorite album. That is fair. If, uh, you know, she'd be willing to do some extra songs and you tweeted back, say the fuck less. So when can we expect this glorious project? <laughs> Listen, Jasmine just sent me the eyes emoji the other day. <laughs> like we've been going back and forth. It's it's always come down to scheduling. Even when she tweeted me, I was drunk on a boat celebrating my birthday with my friends, and I uh, one of my uh, EPs on the show had to text me, and all she texted me was Issa. Period. And you can't text anybody that because my my drunk heart dropped and I was like what the fuck what happened and tell me what the, what's going on and she was like no Jasmine just tweeted you she wants you to do and so I was super hyped and I was like you know when your favorite Jasmine is my favorite artist she is my favorite artist she has been I've you know written to her music since you know her very first album I imagined making a movie to her songs I started to write well, I told her this I started to write a movie to her her first album and then never finished it so to get that call was exciting. But part of me was like, girl, why you didn't hit me before I came out? I would have cleared my schedule. I'm about to shoot this show. And so it's just been a matter of making it making it work. But I'm committed to making it happen. Well, uh, the streets need it, as they say. We need that collaboration to go down, <laughs> particularly given you have such a eloquent breakdown of the whole phase. So I'm like, I need whole phase to meet hotels <laughs> so that we can have <laughs> a whole aces. Like we need this all going down. A whole aces. Yes, I'm here for that. Yes. <laughs> and by the way, I, I, I subscribe to the belief the whole phase is whenever you want it to be. I mean, it's real. It really is. You just have to tap in. <laughs> right. It's not just for um for college. And sometimes it may 
come at a different point in your life when you're you're single and yes it could yes it could i've seen it i've seen that play out with some of my heroes <laughs> my, my heroes have been some of my heroes are older women who are just getting it in and respect uh, definitely a lot of respect as you know as i said you're doing um a ton of different projects I'm sure you're asked this a lot, but I'd, I'd love to still hear your answer. Nevertheless, is like, um, how do you prevent yourself from being spread too thin? Because you have, you know, radio, you have movies, you have shit, you're writing rap shit, which I want to ask you about. Do you care to prevent this or how do you prevent this? <laughs> yes, I definitely care to prevent it. But I, I, I lean on the people that I work with a lot. I definitely get frustrated. Um, one of the things that, you know, I've realized is. I came into this to create and to make stuff. And in doing so, we created a company and then companies. And that comes with, you know, managing people ultimately and being this uh, a leader and uh, a CEO. And those aren't things that I signed up for. That Those aren't things that I was trained to do. And that's a completely different skill set. And so that has been hard to, to navigate. And as we grow and as, as these companies grow, that's something that I'm learning to do and learning like, oh, I don't want to do this. I want to focus my arenas in this area. So it's a, it's a balance. And that has been spurting me thin. Um, but I'm just learning how to navigate that and very transparently. But yeah, I, I'm. This is what I want to do. I'm excited to create and build things. I've always loved to just build things, and to be able to do that with capable, smart people that I trust is a dream come true. Well, yeah, making that transition from merely artist and creator to business woman, uh, what were some of the challenges for you in doing that? Not knowing shit. Uh, there's a huge learning curve and. In many cases, like I, I remember one year, I was so into the business part and building that I looked up inhibiting years since I wrote anything original. And I'm like, what the fuck? I, this is what I wanted to do. So what am I doing? So that's been a challenge. But I think the team part is is hard. People are hard. I don't think that everyone is built to, to, to lead, to want to lead. Um, again, I feel like that's a, its own skill set, and I think you know, in any job, it's just it's going to be hard to run a company. Yeah, I mean, I, despite what LLC Twitter says, it's like it's not. <laughs> what is LLC Twitter? I need to know this. So LLC Twitter is this, like you know, everybody as we're taping this, Joe Biden signed the the COVID nineteen relief bill, right? So everybody getting a new fresh set of stimmies, right? So. LLC Twitter will convince you on $1,400 that you can start a multinational company. That is like whenever <laughs> it's any new money that is given to anybody, they're like, yo, you need to take that refund check of $50, get you an LLC. Uh, invest. Invest. It's like, <laughs> like, it's just like, it's pretty much like what you want to say. It's like, dog, like everybody is not meant to build a business. Like I believe in creating wealth. I do understand that part of it, but yo, I, there's one Jay Z, okay? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like he can do that shit. Like I, I ain't got a title up in me. Like I don't. So, you know, I have my own companies as well. I do what I do. But LLC Twitter is this. I, I don't know if it was LLC Twitter that had that crazy question about would you rather have dinner with Jay Z or I saw that shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's some LLC oh, Twitter okay. shit. Okay, say <laughs> right? no more. Yes, it's like take the money people talking about you know the other favorite question 
800 credit score or $10 million. It's like, motherfucker, take the money. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? That is so. possibly the dumbest thing I've heard. Okay, got it. That I didn't know that that was a question. All right, well. I put that all in the bucket of, of you know, $200 dates and all the dumb shit that like happens on Twitter, which it does entertain because the responses are just very entertaining. Very, very entertaining. But I, I know how difficult it is to suddenly have to switch over and be a CEO and like run shit. And especially if you just want to create. So what does your writing process look like now versus I guess how it used to look? Well, it's, it's really been about designating days and that's been really helpful. The pandemic as devastating and terrible as it was really like, you know, for so many of us made me push pause and reevaluate the energy that I was expending. So uh, I've dedicated certain days to just, clear to write because uh, I realized I need that. I need to have the space to be able to be creative. And then a couple of days a week is when I designate all of my business doings and meetings. And I've been really protective about that time when we're shooting all that shit goes out the window, but at least I can justify it by like, Oh, I'm shooting a show. I'm shooting the thing that I, you know, I created, but yeah, I've just been really protective of my creative space, which impacts my creative process so um you and the city girls um who i put in sort of my um uh, you know if i had a council of life coaches it'd be like the city girls meg the stallion <laughs> lil kim cardi b like you i share an affinity for ratchet empowering female rappers right and so and i don't even call them ratchet like they just they're just good i love them so much so you all are creating a series for hbo max uh rap shit so what can you tell me about it um it's one of those series that i was able to write uh during the pandemic uh wrote the pilot and um hbo max dug it and it was just a story that i really wanted to tell because it, it it was inspired by just this particular time in rap and in the abundance of female rappers that we have um and the competition the community that exists and also the rise of so many of them happened via social media. And that's been so interesting to watch. And obviously I can relate too. So I wanted to put those factors in the show. And then the comments that JD made back in the day, um, I guess a year now about like, why are all female rappers? Why do they have to rap about their pussy? Which I thought was just so unfair. So all of those elements combined, I was like, I wanna make a show about this. And then uh, HBO Max ordered it to series. And because I said it in Miami, I was like, you know, and because, you know, City Girl, I thought about City Girls, I thought about Cardi Meg, but Miami, you can't do a show without, in Miami without the City Girls. So approached them and they were down. Uh, and they've been really, really great about making sure that it's authentic. Because I'm not from Miami. I've been there a couple of times and um, really just love the city. And uh, I wanted to have the same authenticity in Miami that LA has for Insecure, Insecure has for LA. Um, and then who's showrunning it is um, a writer who I love, who's been on Insecure, Sarita Singleton, and she's killing it right now. So I'm really excited about the writer's room and um, just getting it out there. And hopefully we'll be shooting it this summer. Did you have a relationship with the with the City Girls? Like, how did this collaboration come about? Beyond fandom? No, no, I had been. I remember when someone put me on to it, I was at a music. I was actually shopping for label deals before radio. And um, one of the execs was like, have you heard of City Girls? 
this had to be 2018. And I was like, no, I'm there. She was like, their mixtape just came out today. I feel like you'd love it. And I was like, okay, girl. And then I listened to it on the way to the car, like home. And I was like, this shit knocks. And then put like all their music in season three. But I've just been a fan and looked up their story and was like, damn, this is so dope. And their, their documentary. So approaching them to do this was the first time we ever got to talk. And, um, you know, I got to tell them how much of a fan I was. I was kind of nervous just because they're dope. And then you realize like other regular people too. <laughs> so it was, it's, it's just been great. And now I apologize if you have done this and I've somehow missed it, but I, I know you have the record label, you have radio, but have you yourself thought about putting out like an album? No, no. I would, in fact, before radio, I was approached to do that. Um, and I always thought like, no, people know that I can't rap like that. I'm not an artist. I don't want to do this. But, you know, took those meetings. And then within those meetings, the idea came to start a record label. And I was like, oh, that's something that I would for sure want to do. And then um, that's kind of how, how radio was born. How is that business different than the other things that you do? The music industry is crazy. It's fucking nuts. Like I did. I've always, you know, I know Hollywood. I understand the nuts and bolts. And the music industry is significantly crazier in a different way. Um, and that's, that's been a learning, a fun learning curve too. I'm, I'm really leaning on, you know, the president of our label, Benoni Tego, who has a, a background um, in music and really just has a vision for, for making this more than a label. And he's done so. And it's an audio everywhere company where we have music supervision we have, you know, a library, we have publishing, we have all these different facets, podcasts, obviously. And so, um, it's it's really its own kind of content and company while making sure that the artists that we represent, you know, own their masters, have health insurance, like all of these things that I would want as an artist. We're very artist friendly. Mm. Uh, it it seems, you know, a lot of your mission, a lot of your projects are obviously um, open up avenues for other artists. Was this always the plan that you wanted to be, you know, a bit of, you know, Harriet Tubman leading us to freedom. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't gonna disrespect Harriet, please. Uh, <laughs> well, it's not a direct comparison. I mean, I you know, I hope people can understand the spirit of that. Like, you know, like, <laughs> but the you the creative version of it. <laughs> um, was that always the plan? I think back in my web series days is when it became clear. Like, because I kept on getting approached of just like how did you do this? How did you do this? And I also met uh, a couple of other people I went to school with. Actually, one girl I went to school with, Jamila Webb, y'all kind of reminded me of each other. It's so weird. If you ever meet Jamila Webb, y'all got similar energy. But when I was doing Awkward Black Girl, she was like, we're trying to start a web series with this other guy, James Bland, uh, who's starting a web series or who has a web series. Can we, can you guys like come tell us what to do? And um, I was like, yeah, sure. I don't really know. I'm just doing it, but I'll share with you everything that I know. And that meeting, learning from him, um, and it was his show, Fail Show at the time. And then like actually literally telling them everything that I knew about how I did what I did um, and was currently doing what I was doing because I only had like three episodes of Locker Blacker out by then. Um, was just like, man, we, we need to all help each other. Like we need to all help each other succeed and share these resources because the culture is at least in Hollywood. So much of it is like, I mean, I got it, but you got to figure it out on your own. Cause I don't want them to see you and then take away the opportunity for me. And it's like, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, so that 
was just kind of how I approached Web Series. Was just like, okay, if I have this platform, then you can have it too, and we should be able to build um, and help each other. And if, if I hear about this opportunity, I'm gonna make sure you hear about it too. And if it's yours, you'll get it. If it's mine, I'll get it. But you should know about it. And I've always just approached everything that way. And then just as a fan, I've always wanted to see more of our stories. And I can't tell all those stories. I'm not equipped to. I'm not skilled to. I don't have the experience to. So as a fan, I want to see other people's dope stories. I want to see other Black people's dope stories um, and you know other creators of color. So if I can support that, then that's what I'm going to do. Uh, you have um, away from insecure been able to play you know a variety of of roles you know from the hate you give to being in romantic comedies um and even being in the photograph which um uh, was just a beautifully shot movie number one and in addition to the story itself how many scripts did you get that were basically just like insecure <laughs> oh man so many so many and um <laughs> You know, it's. It, I think people are just like something successful. So of course she, she's gonna want to do more successful stuff. Let's tap into her voice, or let's just do more of the same. And I have no interest in doing that. And I realized that I didn't have interest in doing that until one getting those scripts, and two, I really admire Melina Masukis, who you know is an incredible director and who directed our pilot and many other episodes. And she has this way of approaching work where she just doesn't want to do the same thing twice. So if it's like, oh, I directed a comedy, I don't want to direct another comedy or in this light. Or if I do, it has to be in this specific light. Now I want to do drama. Now I want to do a comic book. Now I want to do this. Now I want to do that. And I love that approach. And it's just like whether she she feels prepared for it or not, she she wants to challenge herself. And I realized that that's something that I want to do too. I think the difference now that I'm learning is that I want to be prepared to challenge myself. In the way that I was speaking of earlier, trying to just like kind of singularly focus, I want to be able to do that for film and television roles when I ultimately, you know, finish with Insecure. But yeah, that's, I, I, I want to just constantly challenge myself in, in every lane. Now, of course, that being said, everybody has a price because Brian Coogler had kind of the same mentality. Like, that's why he didn't do Creed 2. He did not want to do a sequel. Mm. And then Disney was like, guess what? Black Panther 2. <laughs> he had to know. He knew. He, yeah, he had to know that was coming, right? So obviously he's going to attack that with Black Panther 2. So if somebody, is there a price tag that uh, you have or, um, or a price that could make you do an insecure movie? No. There's no price. I would have to really want to do it. No, there's there's no price. And like, you know, there's prices for insecure season six. I still don't want to do it. Like, I just want something is I hate to be played out. I hate that. I hate when I, I love something and I watch it just just get stomped into the ground. Um, and that's kind of how I, I feel about anything that I do. Like, I just don't want to overstay my welcome. Even personally, like, I'll leave your party. I don't want you to be like, you know, like, oh, girl, you still here? You still laughing at my joke? No, like, I want to be missed. Um, and I think that that's just, that's just the mentality that I have. So no price. <laughs> um, the price would be my pride. <laughs> I got you. Um, although, you know how black people are. Like, we don't ask you to leave. We just say, what y'all about to do? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> that is the cold word, people. Yes, it is. That it's time for your ass to go. <laughs> what y'all about to get into? Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Get into leaving my house. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that, you know, the pandemic gave you some time to kind of press pause. What was your favorite guilty pleasure viewing during the pandemic? I've had so many. Uh, guilty pleasure. Appointment television was I May Destroy You. Then I really got into Big Mouth. Um, because people kept on tagging me, uh, like a line reference to me. And I was like, I've seen this show, but I've never, like, it's, it's a cartoon. And I was like, oh, it's Lena and Quinta in it. And then I learned, like, they weren't in it till the next season. But I cry. It's disgusting in the best way. It's so, it's really great. Um, and then just a lot of crime murder documentaries. Like, I've consumed so much. I've watched every murder documentary you could imagine between HBO, uh, Netflix, and Amazon. Why do you think those, it, it feels like women really over-index those. I don't know why that is. I mean, I also am t- heavy into the true crime thing. So what are your, I don't know, theories about why do we seem to be gravitating towards such, you know, kind of heavy, dark, frightening material? <laughs> I'm obsessed with the why. I'm, I'm just obsessed with like what makes people snap. And I think... Uh, in a dark way, I see myself in it and the people around me. You just want to know, uh, for me, like what, what to be aware of in people. I know that's what I'm searching for. Like, damn, what I have seen it coming. There's just, you, you can't not insert yourself in those situations. And I don't know, it's fascinating. It's tragically, disgustingly, devastatingly fascinating um, because there's stories on their own and there's stories that have endings. Um, and I, I, I don't watch the ones I don't know if you do that are unsolved. Like that's unsettling to me. I'm not gonna watch unsolved mysteries. I need to know who did it, and either you're on your way to catching them or you caught them. Yeah, I, I mean the the two I probably got the most addicted to were Fatal Attraction on BET, and now they got a new one coming on TV One, which I am all in. Called I Did It for My Man, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm all in. <laughs> I, I'm all in. I <laughs> like I need can't to watch that one. I'm gonna get too mad. There's just no way. There's no maybe there's a way, but uh nah. Yeah, I, I I mean sometimes it is it's like not having the conclusion can be um, you know, it'll force you down a rabbit hole because next thing you know, I'm on like seven websites trying to figure out but what happened then. And- yes, and I do that anyway. Yes, I do that anyway. <laughs> like I watched um that this was unresolved, but did you watch Murder on Middle Beach? I think it was called. It's on HBO. No, I heard about it, but I didn't get to that one yet. Yeah. Uh, if you don't like unresolved ones, don't watch that one. But I was on a rabbit hole. But the one you should not watch that was not a true crime. It was like, where's the truth and where's the crime? Was the Cecil Hotel shit? I was mad. I watched that shit. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Whack. <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't. I didn't love that one. A lot of people did. And I was like, I mm, nah, I, I didn't love that one at all. Were you in Bridgerton High? I haven't watched Bridgerton yet. Um, I'm not a period piece person, uh, but I love Shonda. So I'm like, OK, it's in my queue. And if you love her other shows, this is very it, it was a very easy watch. And um, that's what people keep saying. But I can't get past the costumes. It's very easy. I'm very simple-minded in that way. I love contemporary shit. Well, I would say this. turn If you do decide to watch it, put the closed captioning on. Oh, I was going to do that anyway, baby. That's who I am. Yeah, I was just like, just put it... <laughs> okay. <laughs> I feel like an old lady. Put it on. 
um, before I get you out of here, Issa, it's a game I play with all of my guests. And you, having been interviewed 70 billion times, you're familiar with such games, which are designed, of course, to make you say something crazy. You know this, right? <laughs> okay. Okay, noted. Yes, it's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. I give you two choices. You pick one of the choices. Keyword, pick one of the choices. All right. Don't be like, but what about this? Like, nah, pick one of the choices. All right. Martin or Fresh Prince? Fresh Prince. Mm. You know, I have appreciated the show more, like watching it now than I think I did at the time. Martin, I think the highs were really, really high, like in terms of the laughter. But overall show, like Fresh Prince was a better overall show. And I, I mean, I have to also blame my childhood. Like I was immersed more in Fresh Prince because my mom was obsessed with keeping me away from adult content. So I didn't get to watch Martin until later. And Fresh Prince was my family show. It was a family show that we got to watch together. So it has those memories for me. Um, Martin is funny as fuck, but Will Smith on deck. Yeah. Um, take care or nothing was the same. <sighs> nothing was the same. Nothing but the same. It was the same. Has more hits to me. Take care is more emo. Nothing was the same. Has more, <laughs> you know. And I appreciate that. You think? It, uh, I, I think a lot of people probably consider Jay Z maybe the number one rapper of all time. Do you think Drake will unseat him, or in your mind, has he already unseated him? I'm not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not getting set up. But I will say that I am. Um, I'm just a Drake fan, like to the core. I know significantly more Drake songs than I do Jay-Z songs. I'm not a hardcore lyricist. I'm a, an emotional, like I can I can connect to this and I connect to Drake more. All right. Uh, bust your windows or lions, tigers and bears? Oh, lions, tigers and bears. Like I'm not <laughs> an emotional person by any means. Um, but I remember going through feelings in a relationship and just bumping that, bumping the shit out of that song. Mm. You know what? I would actually agree with you, even though I obviously bust your windows is like the bigger hit by Jasmine Sullivan, but it's something about lions and tigers and bears. I'm not afraid of that, but I'm scared of loving you. I was like, hit me right here. Jasmine, yes. hit me right here. Feels. <laughs> All the fucking feels. She does that. Uh, so at Hilltop Cafe on the menu, Short rib grilled cheese or the OG beignets? Oh, fuck. Um, the OG beignets because they come with Nutella and I can't eat cheese. I'm lactose intolerant. Oh, so no. That's why. So macaroni and cheese, huh? No? No, it's gone from my life, which is good for my waistline because I was, I would fuck that shit. <laughs> Everything. And finally, Larry David or Jerry Seinfeld? <laughs> wow. I always save the best one for last. <laughs> <laughs> I know both of them had very they were very influential on on your comedic career or that part of your career. That is very hard. I'm gonna have to go with who I knew about first, and that was Seinfeld's. That's he has a blueprint and he is more forward facing. And yeah, I, I I love them both, but that's hard. Thank you for that. I mean, both shows are great, but curb your enthusiasm is probably the one I connect with most. I still, it's so many episodes. Not that, that I still remember. Not that Seinfeld doesn't have very classic episodes that people don't, but particularly when uh, Vivica Fox, <laughs> when the black folks moved in. <laughs> JB Smooth. Smooth and Vivica Fox, oh, uh, just goes. 
gold. Who would have thought? Like we were just watching TV greatness at that time. And I, I think JB, the probably the realest shit he ever said on that show was that black people like the temperature of seventy six because he ain't lying. Because seventy six is my number. I was like, how did he know this? It's seventy six. We like our shit at seventy six. Is what it is. <laughs> And the shit would just roll out of his mouth just confidently. I love that man. He's an idiot. It's true. 76 is the perfect temperature. I fluctuate between 76 and 77. It's 77 in here right now, but he's absolutely right. Well, listen, uh, Issa, I just want to thank you so much for taking this time out. I know you're busy as fuck. <laughs> okay. BAF, busy as fuck. But it was nice to, to sit and have a conversation. I know we've kind of run into each other in passing before, and I promise... The next time that we see each other, I will try to be less awkward. (laughs) (laughs) I will be the one. It's always going to be on me, but I appreciate you. I love everything that you're doing. Um, Thank you for for being so great and for being such a champion of the show and just everything. I appreciate you. Yeah, and I I look forward to fighting for whatever shit y'all going to have me fighting about. This year, it's alright. It's okay. I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm, I'm knee deep. I'm be like Jon Snow with the sword, man. I'm knee deep in these wars on insecure. I can't. <laughs> Defin- I cannot. Definitely. Um. All right, we'll do. Uh, Issa's getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. Now, earlier in the podcast during Word of the Week, I purposely didn't elaborate on why I felt like this country has essentially given up on gun control. It's beyond just the fact that we're far too comfortable with children being killed. I was saving some of what I had to say for this, for fucking I'm bothered, because gun violence is one of the many big problems that this country likely won't ever address anytime soon in any meaningful way because of one simple word filibuster first let's have a brief civics lesson so i can explain what the filibuster is and why democrats need to get rid of it otherwise some of the most important legislation on their agenda will never see the light of day and even worse the filibuster will continue its legacy as the go-to weapon in the jim crow tool belt so the filibuster works like this It's a tactic often used by senators to block or slow down legislation. A common filibustering tool that's used is endlessly debating a topic, nonstop talking. Sometimes a filibustering senator may also introduce time consuming procedural motions. Senators who are filibustering have talked nonstop for 15 hours. Another former senator, Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, who also was one of the most racist senators in history. He once spoke for 24 hours and 18 minutes straight, which to date is the longest uninterrupted filibuster in Senate history. And when I tell you in a moment exactly what legislation Strom Thurmond was trying to block, let's just say the existence of the filibuster will make a whole lot more sense. First of all, to bring about a filibuster, any senator can do it. To end a filibuster, the full Senate must trigger what is called closure. And to get that, you need at least 60 senators or three fifths of the Senate to bring this to a vote. If closure is achieved, that means there can be a maximum of 30 hours of debate. After that, they vote. 
without closure, the bill remains in a state of nothingness, basically. I rank the filibuster right up there with, I know you are, but what am I? Or nah, 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 nah. Now, if you're hearing this and find yourself in utter disbelief that a country with over 300 million people, advanced technology, and complex issues would have such a childish rule in place that is designed to derail important legislation, well, welcome to America and all of its glorious contradictions, hypocrisies, and flaws. The reason it's important for you to understand the nature of the filibuster is because this is one of the reasons something like gun control isn't likely to pass. Even if the majority of the Senate supported it, assuming it was pushed through the House of Representatives, all it would take is for one senator to filibuster it. And then it would be pretty much done because they would never get enough votes, as in 60 votes, to actually make the legislation pass. And in case you need reminding, there are 100 senators that are in our Senate. Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell, who I have said many times on this podcast, is the worst politician in America. In many ways, I considered him worse than Donald Trump. Now, he said that if Democrats get rid of the filibuster, which they did during Obama's administration in order to get legislation passed because the Republicans were saying, fuck it, we'll never pass it because y'all got a black president and we just ain't with the shits. Anyway, uh, McConnell said it will be a, quote, sort of nuclear winter for Democrats, and he is prepared to use every possible tactic to stall important legislation. Now, imagine being so proud to be a heartless jackass that delights in making things worse for the American people, strictly for ego and control, because the issues he's talking about blocking or the issues that the Democrats have on their agenda are issues the majority of Americans agree on, like gun control. Also, while making a case for the filibuster last week, McConnell had the fucking nerve to say that the filibuster wasn't racist. He said that with a straight face. Allow me to crack my knuckles before I get into this one. I wouldn't expect an asshole like Mitch McConnell to be forthcoming about how damaging the filibuster has been to racial progress because white supremacy doesn't seek to lessen the power of white supremacy. But here are just a few examples of how the filibuster has been used to thwart racial progress. For decades, Southern Democrats used the filibuster, mostly in the first half of the 20th century, to oppose civil rights voting protections for black voters and anti-lynching bills. They were even petty enough to use the filibuster to block a monument to black World War I veterans. Segregationists and Republicans took the baton and eagerly used the filibuster to keep racism alive and thriving, which brings me back to Strom Thurmond. He talked for a whole day to oppose civil rights legislation. In 1983, Jesse Helms, who also competed for the gold in the most racist senator competition, he filibustered the bill that made Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday a national holiday. As fucked up as the filibuster's history is, there are still some old establishment Democrats who want to maintain the filibuster or simply just reform it, including President Joe Biden. That is a losing stupid strategy. The president and the Democratic Party owe a significant debt to the black people who put them in office. And it was no question it was black people who put them in office. There are just too many issues that are drowning our community. And if those issues aren't addressed, 
the Democrats will effectively be sending the message to black people that they remain more committed to an obstructive ass backwards loophole that was created in 1789. It's 2021. Why the fuck are we still upholding some shit that was instituted when people carried muskets, men wore stockings and bad lace fronts? The filibuster must go right now because there are two very important pieces of legislation that are simply collecting dust that would positively impact black life in a major way. One of those legislative bills is called the For the People Act or H.R. 1, which would create automatic same day and online voter registration nationwide. It will require states to overhaul their registration systems. It would expand absentee voting and limit the state's ability to remove people from voter rolls. The other important piece of legislation is the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which has already passed in the House. This act would ban no-knock warrants, you know, like the kind that killed Breonna Taylor. In certain cases, mandate data collection on police encounters, prohibit racial and religious profiling, and redirect funding to community-based policing programs. If the Democrats allow the For the People and the George Floyd Policing Acts to wither away, then they will again prove that they don't have the stomach or the conviction for difficult choices and difficult fights. It would be a slap in the face to civil rights icon John Lewis, who not only nearly died years ago when he marched for voting rights, but until his dying breath, John Lewis begged his fellow lawmakers to protect the voting rights of black Americans. George Floyd was murdered on a Minneapolis street in broad daylight. His death fueled protests worldwide. George Floyd is dead because his life wasn't valued. And by not fighting to ensure that what happened to him doesn't happen to someone else, the Democrats will be saying his life still doesn't matter. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Berner is our technical director and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, supervising producer is Jifa Yador and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. This or That Music, The Choice is Yours, Revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. on behalf of itself and Peep Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Please remember to subscribe and share with your friends.